I feel as though all of us here, and maybe sometimes everyone, is in what is called in our tradition a state of onenut. And onen is someone who is in limbo between the death of a loved one and its, the loved one's burial. And during that unique time, halakha mandates, Jewish law mandates, that an onen is patur. An onen is released from all activities that have to do with focusing the mind, all activities that have to do with kavanah, with, with dat, with awareness. There's an understanding in Jewish law that there are states of vulnerability and emotional turbulence, chaos, that are so overwhelming and so destabilizing and so unsettling. And in some sense, you have a free pass. You're given, you're given time where you don't have you don't have stuff on your back, things that you have to carry. And I don't know about you, but I feel that way a lot. And it doesn't matter in some ways if I've made a pledge to myself that the beginning of Elul this past week, the beginning of the month that precedes the high holidays would be a month where I took to heart the teachings of the Hasidic masters who said 
commenting on the beginning of tomorrow morning's reading, Shoftim v'shotrim, titin lecha b'chol sharecha. Station police officers and guards around your gates and the Hasidic masters reading that statement playfully and based on the Zohar. Sharecha, the gates of the face, the gates of perception, the doors of perception, if you will. The seven doors, the two eyes, the two ears, the nostrils and the mouth, the seven apertures between the inside and the outside are to be guarded. Make sure you guard what comes in and what comes out. Facebook and CNN. I'm not even kidding. All of the, the assault, the assault of, on the senses, the auditory violence, the visual violence. And even with that shmirah, even with that shmirah ma'al yutah, that extra awareness, extra mindfulness around what comes in and what comes out of my own inner space, I still feel, I don't know about you, I feel it's overwhelming. The violence in the air, the sense of, of fear, anxiety, I was sitting in a coffee shop, a local coffee shop on the Upper West Side this week, and I was having a lovely conversation with one of the members of our community, and we were talking about Israel, of course, we were talking about Israel, Palestine, we were talking about the situation, the matzav, the milchama, the war, the mibzah, whatever you want to use. And she left, and there was an Israeli man behind her who was standing, who overheard, and we started having a conversation. It was a lovely conversation. You couldn't imagine a more pleasant conversation about such an unpleasant topic such a heated topic. And out of nowhere, in this lovely little coffee shop, a fight broke out between the owner of the coffee shop and his waitress. And words were exchanged, and it was a drama, and she stormed out, and all of us were sitting there going, what just happened? Just to get that image, we're having a pleasant, placid conversation about Israel-Palestine and the owner of the restaurant is upset that his waitress wasn't writing the appropriate check and that became a conflagration. The air is, there's something going on. And you think, wow, I'll arrive at Shabbat and the Torah portion will certainly be a Torah portion that will deal with something peaceful, something insightful. And you open up this week's reading, tomorrow morning, and after you get through the law and order that must be established in order to create a just and civil society, and the famous beautiful words, tzedek, tzedek, tirdof, justice, justice shall you pursue, we arrive at the end of the parsha with rules on war. And just parenthetically for a moment here, it would be unjust of me to not mention that we have in this week's reading an expression of what Phyllis Treble, the great academic of Bible, wrote are called texts of terror. It's impossible to open up tomorrow morning's Torah right here, our sacred living text, and not be horrified to read about the injunction to destroy all of the seven nations that lived in Canaan and not to have any mercy on men, women, and children. It's impossible not to feel shocked. But if we were to stop there, 
then we would be remiss of one of the most beautiful verses in the Torah. And it's, it's irony of where it's placed. At the end of the Parsha, the Torah will tell us that we come and we lay siege against the city and we call out to it in peace and they don't want peace. The Torah tells us what we are to do. And then the Torah enjoins us, commands us not to destroy the fruit trees that surround the city. And in a very elliptic verse, a verse that can be read at least two, maybe three, four ways, the reason why we are not to destroy fruit trees is ki adam hu lavo alea, is the tree of the field then a person that you would then destroy the trees of the field? What did the trees do to you? This becomes the linchpin. This is the verse of the Jewish environmentalist movement to some degree. It is certainly the source in our tradition for what is called bal tashchit, unnecessary destruction of property or of anything, something that has a deep purpose. But it's playfully misread by the rabbis and then later by the Hasidic teachers and the Kabbalists as not a rhetorical question, that is the tree then a human being, but it is read affirmatively as a statement, not a question. What does that mean? Human beings are trees. We are trees. It is this wonderful invitation. Yeah, you feel it as an invitation to think of the commonality, the similarity, the, the expression of our treeness that gives rise to a minhag, a custom that I had the pleasure of participating in last Sunday. Some of you might know this custom is called chalaka or obsharen. And obsharen is the Yiddish for the haircut that one gives to a three-year-old, three-year-old boy usually, some my dear friends, John and Julia, had it for a three-year-old girl, for Bina. Three-year-old children, in the comparison between human beings and trees, there's an agricultural law called Orla, which means that the first three years' yield of a fruit-producing tree is not to be touched. And so for three years, we don't touch the hair, and we let it grow, let it grow. <laughs> we let it Go all the way. We let it grow. It grows and it grows. And then we cut the hair on this past Sunday for my beautiful little son, Tal, in a very private ceremony. We cut his hair. And I wanted to read to you what my dear friend Rabbi Jill Hammer wrote two years ago in honor of my son Bear's Sharon about that custom. Here is the part she wrote, the part of us that is us yet can be given away. The Nazir, the dedicant, the special individual in the Torah who grows their hair and then gives it back after being cut, gives the hair as a sacred offering up to God, a gift that comes directly from the self. This haircut is in part an offering a way of saying that the child is now old enough to be bringing their gifts to God. But more deeply, she writes, hair grows and is cut 
and then grows again like grain or leaves of a tree. It is a part of us that although can be taken away, will always return. It's that quality of rebirth, of the promise of something that was once cut that will come again. The promise of something that will grow even though it is no longer visible that I'm feeling the Shabbos. And as we read tomorrow after the siege of a city and the Torah reminds us, don't cut the fruit-bearing tree, the tree that will give you yield, that will give you fruit, the tree that will again grow and grow and remind you of the cycle of life, don't cut down that. Don't remove that promise of rebirth. It was so hard for me to be holding his hair. You know, I was thinking, oh, he's such a little boy, and now he's going to be a... He was a little girl, now he's going to be a little boy. <laughs> and, I, and people kept saying to me, don't worry, it's going to grow again, don't worry. And there's a part of me that thinks, no, it's not going to grow back. There's a lost innocence, there's something that is forever lost. And that's the way I feel now in this world sometimes. I feel, can I trust again that faith will grow again in my heart? We don't have a theological crisis we have a humanitarian crisis. We don't know if we can believe in people anymore. We don't know if we can open our hearts to trust in a world where there are images of violence, of sieges, of, of craziness assaulting us all the time. We see every day the ebbing away of our innocence, of power structures making decisions without an awareness of how it impacts the earth and how it impacts societies and civilizations for generations to come. And we stay and we say, what can we do? We throw up our hands and we say, We will grow again. Let it grow. It will grow again. Faith will come again. We have no choice but to have faith. We are theotropic beings. We incline towards meaning like flowers incline towards the sun. We will have faith again. It will be born again. That which was cut will give forth fruit. Children are also called perot. I'm thinking about all of the perot that have been lost in the last month and a half. All of the fruit. And so I was thinking all day, I was thinking, because I'm sitting back in the same coffee shop. <laughs> and I can still feel the reverberations of that moment in my body as I sat there. And so I thought, who can give me hope today? Who's going to be the one that helps remind me that fruit, that things grow again, including lost faith? So I thought of the Piazetzner, the rabbi from the Warsaw Ghetto. I thought, I can't imagine anybody who was facing something more scary, more alarming than someone who was living in the Warsaw Ghetto. And so I wondered if he had written anything about tomorrow's reading. And sure enough, on Parshat Shoftim, August 30th, 1941, somewhat 70, Three years ago, he quotes a different verse in this week's reading. He quotes a verse 
that appears earlier when the Torah is talking about not depending on divination and augury, not worrying about the future. The Torah says, don't seek out soothsayers and witches and all kinds of different ways of inquiring about the future, but rather, tamim tiyeh im Hashem Be tamim. Be wholesome, be whole, be complete. And this is what the Rebbe says. He says, on the simplest level, projecting into the future can be understood to mean that each and every one of us promises that we'll do something next week. And the harder thing is to do it today. Tamim be wholesome today. And then he goes on to say, he goes on to say that in a world where we have experienced suffering and we are afraid of the future, our only recourse to faith is to trust in the wholeness and wholesomeness of this present moment. The injunction, Tamim be wholesome, is a promise to abandon the fear of what will come and to trust in the faith that can grow here now. Tamim So I want to end with the song we began, Leif Tahor. Tahor means pure, but it also means clear. And it's a tefillah, it's a prayer that says, God, make my heart so clear. God, make my heart so settled that I become the quiet in the midst of the raging storm all around me. And where there is fear, God, help me to rest in, in a place of deep faith and trust. Even if this tree has been cut, even if the fruit is not here, I am to remember that it's coming again. Faith grows in the soil of of tremut, of wholesomeness. Help me to touch the skin of my beloved, to hold my children, to smell Shabbat, and to taste my food tonight. Help me hug someone as I leave. Help me to be in a place of deep trust. Join me, everyone. Leif Tahor. Leif Tahor. Elohim. Nachon. Leif Tahor, Leif Tahor, Leif Tahor, Virali Elohim, Viruach Nachon, Viruach Nachon, Chanesh Bekirbi, Dinena la 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 la